like to introduce our first teacher this morning. Um, it's Carolyn Miller, and I'd just like to talk about her and kind of share a few things with you um, about her. Um, I've known Carolyn for a very long time. I was trying to think the other day. I can remember when I first met Carolyn and her husband, Mick. Um, we were going to the Calvary Chapel in Omaha. And I want to say that my oldest, JC and Seth, were little kids. I mean, they were little, really, very little. So we're talking 20, 20 some years that, um, that I've known them. Anyway, um, God had put it on their heart, um, a desire to have a Bible study in the community where they are from, which is Clarinda, New Market area. And um, they had touched base with our pastor in Omaha um, and asked if they could send somebody down or he could come down um, to put on a Bible study in their community because it's quite a drive from Clarinda up to Omaha. And so, um, but I also think the first time I ever met them was they actually started driving to Omaha for a time anyway um, to come to church there. And um, I, I can remember that's where I first met them. So all that aside, I've known them for a long time. And they have been, Carolyn and her husband Mick, have been nothing but a support, faithful support in every way imaginable um, to my husband and I um, through this journey of ours, and especially my husband. And um, so I love them dearly. They hold a very special place in my heart. Um, I look up to Carolyn immensely. She's a very wise woman, and um, I'm so grateful that she is willing to share her heart with us today. Um, so um, if you need a Bible, I do want to say this. If you need a Bible, we do have Bibles on the back um, podium back there. And um, if you need a pen and would like to take notes, if you just raise your hand, I can bring you a pen because um, that's a great thing to do on these days. So anyway, Carolyn Miller. So after being called a wise woman, I'm like, I'll probably fall down or I'll probably do some stupid thing. One thing that I would like to add to what Jenny said was um, when Mick first thought about having a Bible study, he called Pastor Steve in Omaha and asked him whether he would be able to send some people to Clorinda for a Bible study, and he said, well, let me pray about it, and you pray about it, and just see what happens. And so several weeks went by, and Mick decided to touch base with Pastor Steve again, and it just so happened that that particular day, Pastor Steve had prayed, Lord, if you really want us to go to Clorinda and have an outreach ministry there, just have somebody from Clorinda call me. And that was the same day that Mick called. So that was really, you know, that just cemented it. Um, and that's where it all started. Pretty amazing. Now, we look outside and we see the sun trying to shine. And this morning when I got out for an early morning walk, it was dreary and it was cold and it was windy. And I just am ready to get out in the garden. Um, I think living in the Midwest, most of us have a garden, and if we don't have a garden, we at least have flowers. And so this time of year, we get really antsy about um, planting a garden and starting seeds. I, this year, for the very first time, have started germinating seeds from a seed into a plant. I usually go buy those at a greenhouse. But this year I decided that I wanted to try that. And so we invested in a grow light and we bought things to get started and Mick made this elaborate thing to hold the grow light. And all I wanted was just suspended, but he went into this huge engineering thing and it took us, it's upstairs in the bedroom, that's where I could shut the door and not have the cats get in, and it took us a long time to get that thing upstairs. It's gigantic. Um, it was way more than I needed, but anyway, I've got it all up there, and I've started my seeds. I started them in paper towels, and I dampened the paper towels, and I put the seeds in there, and I wrote on the outside what they were, and then I put them in 
a container in a dark closet. And I had read that seeds don't need light to germinate. And sure enough, within three days, some of them had started already germinating. So then we transplanted them with tweezers and, you know, really went all out on this. But they're growing and they look awesome. And so thinking about seeds and starting plants from seeds, it made me think about the miracle of a seed, really. A seed is alive, and every seed has an embryo inside it. And around that, there is enough nutrition to feed that seed until it puts up its first two leaves, which they then take care of the plant until the actual true leaves come on. And um, that's a miracle. And as I think about the seed... I think about all the things that I'm doing to try to help this seed live, and God just does it. You know, he knows when to germinate it. He knows how much sun it needs. He knows how many hours of darkness it needs. He knows all about the water. And we, as individuals, struggle to do his job. Well, of course, we can't do his job. But a seed is alive, A seed does nothing at all until it's planted. A seed is much smaller than the plant that it produces. And I planted broccoli. And broccoli is the tiniest little seed. It is just minute. And actually, when broccoli grows, it's a pretty good-sized plant. So that is amazing to me how... um, a tiny seed can produce something that's much bigger. And a seed always produces after its own kind. If you plant a pea, you're going to get a pea plant. If you plant corn, you're going to get a corn stalk. So it always reproduces after itself. And a seed is powerful. How many times have you planted a seed, and then we get a rain, and the ground crusts over, kind of, and that seed will just bend over and it starts to come up and it pushes that clod of dirt away. So a little tiny seed is pretty powerful. A seed begins its growth in secret underneath the soil. We don't see what's going on underneath there. And a seed has to have a strong root system. It has to have a strong root system to support it. And even when you start seeds and have these little seedlings, they recommend that you put a fan on it. And so I've done that too. You put a fan on it and it kind of blows on the seeds and it makes resistance and the seed has to develop deeper roots in order to stand up straight. A seed takes a lot of time to produce. When you think about planting it and germination and it grows and grows and grows until it produces fruit, that takes time. A seed is persistent. A seed needs water to grow. A seed isn't affected by other seeds around it. A seed does what it was intended to do, and it doesn't care what everything else around it is doing. Um, A seed won't stop growing without nourishment. It will keep on, and it will be persistent until it gets the nourishment that it needs. The more seeds you plant, the larger the harvest. And as I was thinking about this, I thought about the parable in the Bible about the sower. And that is found three places. It's found in Matthew 13, in Mark 4, and in Luke 8. And I really don't know why we call this the parable of the sower, because it really is more about the soil than it is the sower. The first three verses in Luke 8 say... Now it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village, preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Harold's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance." I chose to read from Luke because that is the only writing that includes women. And Luke many times writes about women and children. He includes women and children in his writing. 
there were a large group of people gathered, and Jesus was having a hard time separating himself from these people in order to teach. And so he and his disciples got into a boat, and they rowed out for a ways, and that's where he taught. But these women were with him. In Genesis, we read that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Women are created in God's image just as men are. While the culture of the time sort of treated women as second-class citizens, we know that God had a special place for women. A lot of times, um, like when Jesus fed the 5,000, we're told that that count was just the men, and women and children were not included in that count. So that was the prevailing thought at that time, and that's just the way their society was. In John 4, we read about the Samaritan woman, and... um, The Samaritans were a breed of people that were developed by um, when the Babylonians overtook the Jewish people. They left behind people that they did not consider were worthy or good enough to take with them. And as those Jews were left behind, intermingled and married non-Jews, a Samaritan was what resulted. And so the Samaritans were really looked down on. Um, They were kind of despised people. And so when Jesus confronted this Samaritan woman, he asked her for a drink. And when his disciples realized that he was talking to a Samaritan woman, they were aghast that he would talk to a Samaritan woman. Because, like I said, they were just people who weren't regarded as being very worthy people. And when Jesus asked her for a drink, that was a pretty personal thing for him to ask her for, um, because at that time also men did not speak to women in public. And so we see that Jesus cared. He really cared about the Samaritan woman. He didn't care what her breeding, what her background was. He just cared about her as a person. And in John 8, we see that Jesus spoke freely with a woman who was involved in adultery. And in those days, adultery was, there were rules written in the Old Testament about what happened to a woman, particularly, who was caught in adultery. And that kind of makes me shake my head, too, because a woman can't be involved in adultery by herself. And so that, once again, sort of... um, gives us an idea of how women were regarded at that time. Now, whether she really was involved in adultery or not remains, I mean, that we don't really know for sure because um, the the laws in the Old Testament said that in order to be convicted of adultery, these people had to be caught in the actual physical act. It couldn't be just two people walking together or leaving a residence or whatever, but they had to actually be caught in the act. And that probably didn't happen in this case. But all of the the Pharisees were trying to get Jesus, um, they wanted to get him out of their midst because he was taking followers that were their followers, and they didn't like that. And so it could be. And, you know, sometimes J.D. says, we think, and we think means that it's just an assumption. But it's possible that these people who were accusing the woman were really kind of framing her. They wanted to catch Jesus in... um, a trap. They wanted to ask him about adultery, and they wanted to see what he would do to this woman. And he didn't do what they thought that he would do. He told her to go and sin no more. He didn't care about her background, but he did care about her. In Luke, we see a story about the widow of Nain. Her husband had died. She only had one son living, and he was the one who was providing for her, and he died. And she was beside herself because now what was she going to do? Jesus came to her, and he told her, go and weep no more. And he touched the son and brought the son back to life. So Jesus, once again, was concerned about this woman who was suffering. 
uh, there was a woman with a bleeding disorder. She'd been plagued with this for 12 years. She had spent all she had on trying to be healed. And of course, because of her infirmity, she was an outcast. And no one went around her at all. 12 years she had suffered with this. Jesus was in the midst of a crowd, and he was going to be teaching, and she had enough faith that she went up to him, and she touched the hem of his garment, and she was instantly healed. And when Jesus felt the power go out of him, he asked, who touched me? And his disciples were like, seriously? Look at the throng of people. How do you know that one specific person touched me? And the woman came to him then, and she bowed down. She was very humble before him, and she admitted to him that she was the one who had touched him, and um, she had been healed. And he said, daughter, be of good courage. Your faith has made you well. So he addressed her with an endearing term, daughter. So in Luke, we see that women... um, are important to Jesus. He didn't look at those women as women necessarily, but he looked at them as human beings, as individuals. And so as we are gathered here today, I'm not a woman's liber at all, but I think that women have a very important part in God's kingdom. God created us differently than he created men. He created us with more of an emotional base than a... um, Men are so logical sometimes, you know, and... um, and they don't, they don't pick up on a lot of emotional things that we pick up on. Sometimes, you know, Mick and I will be talking to someone, and after we leave, I'll say something, and he'll say, well, why, what would you think that? Why would you think that? It's because I perceived something in that woman that she didn't verbalize, but I knew that there was more going on than what she said. So God created us in that way, and all of us here today should not feel like we are less important because we're women, but we should feel like we have been called for a special purpose in God's kingdom. Um, In Luke 8, we're going to go back to Luke 8 again, starting in verse 4. And when a great multitude had gathered, they came to him from every city, and he spoke by a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop of a hundredfold. When he had said these things, he cried, He who has ears, let him hear. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. And the following verses explain the different types of soil that the seed needs to fall on. And in every case, the seed remained exactly the same. The seed had the ability within it to reproduce. The only thing that's different in this parable regarding the seed was the soil that it fell on. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear, and the devil comes along, and out of their, he takes the word out of their heart, lest they should believe and be saved. But the ones on the rock are those who hear, and they receive the word, and the joy, and it has no root, They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, they fall away. Now, the one that fell among thorns are those who, when they heard, they go out, and they're choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life, and bring no fruit to maturity. But the ones that fell on the ground are those who have heard the word with a noble and good heart, and it bears fruit with patience. Now, Jesus used this illustration because the people in that time we're very familiar with agriculture, and we're familiar with agriculture in the Midwest, so we can relate to some of these things. This isn't a new parable to me. I mean, I've heard this parable many times, and I've, I've known that the word fell on different types of soil, but the one thing that I really had never equated with this was the heart 
was involved. And I don't know why I missed that. Um, when we talk about the different kinds of soil, we usually use adjectives to express a certain person. I mean, we visualize a person, but while that's accurate, it's the heart of the person that causes them to act the way they're acting. I missed that totally. So in studying this, I was really convicted about the condition of our heart. The physical seed can be planted any which way, and it'll grow. It's going to find its way out of the soil. When I was planting these little seeds, you know, when they germinate, you've got the seed, and then you've got this little squiggly thing that's coming out of it. And I'm like, I don't know how to plant this. I don't know what's the top, and I don't know what's the bottom. And so I Googled it, and when you Google things like that, you get lots of different opinions. And some said, well, the seed, the point has to go up. And some said the point has to go down. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know how to plant this thing. But I finally just planted it, figuring if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But the seeds all found their way out from underneath that dirt. So no matter what way you plant a seed, it's going to find its way. There's no problem with the seed. The problem lies with the soil. The symbol in Christ's story of God's word being like a seed is so true. We can't make a seed. They're part of God's creation. They're alive. They're living and they're abiding. So when we proclaim the gospel, it can't be our own message. It must be God's word. It has to be by his power, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is explaining why the same living word makes no impact in some people's hearts. It's the condition of their heart, and it's reflected in their response to God's word. In those days, they had no tractors. They tilled the soil, maybe using an animal or maybe doing it by hand. And they would walk among the fields. And as they walked among the fields, they would make paths. At our house, we have several paths in our yard. We have a path to the chicken house. We have a path to the bunkhouse. We have a path that goes out to the wood furnace. And I try to divert my pattern so that I don't have a path in the grass, but you consequently always fall back into that same path. Well, that's what these people would do. They would follow the same path, and it would pack it down. So when the seed was broadcast onto the prepared field, some of it actually fell on this path, and it was hard, and the seed couldn't, couldn't survive there. The hard soil was right on the edge of the fruitful field, but the hard soil here in this parable, it replicates a hard heart. It's a portrait of hearers who hear, but they're resistant and they're unstirred by God's word. They're unresponsive to spiritual things and they're unconcerned about the fate of their soul or just disregarding God's warnings. And the Old Testament might have called these people stiff-necked. The hard heart becomes hard by a constant flow of bad thoughts and bad deeds. They never have any remorse. They're not sorrowful about their sin. They have no guilt. And so with each passing action, that heart becomes harder and harder. And with no repentance, that buildup of traffic makes the heart so calloused and stiff that even when the seed is sown there, it can't produce because it falls on hard soil. And in thinking about a hard heart, it made me think about on the news sometimes you'll see a mugshot of somebody that's gotten in trouble, you know, and they're holding up this thing that's got a number on it, and they're smiling. And I'm like, that is odd. It's like, dude, you're in trouble, and you're smiling. This isn't a family portrait, but that is a good example of somebody with a hard heart. They have no idea that, or no concept of wrong, none at all. The seed that falls on the shallow soil, it can't survive because that soil, 
right underneath the soil there are rocks, and as the sun shines and heats up those rocks, it zaps all the moisture out of the ground, and so the seed can't develop deep roots. And deep roots, we know, are very important because that's what gives the plant the nourishment that it needs. A shallow heart is proud. Ambition drives them. These people oftentimes are they're drawn to the warmth of the fellowship, and they can fit right in, they can be enthusiastic, but they have no concept of the coldness of sin. The shallow, shallow heart can freely discuss, discuss um, needs, wants, conflicts, struggles. They're very pleasant, they fit right in, but down deep in their lives resides pride, and an unrepentant sin. And when persecution comes along, or when God asks them to turn from their ways and to do a special task, they, they, they're not believers anymore. They had a shallow heart, and they're not willing to do that. The crowded heart tries to survive among the weeds. And the weeds grow up, and they suck all of the moisture and all the nutrients out of the ground. And they also shade the plant, the seed that's trying to develop. And so the seed has really no chance in a crowded situation like that. Those people are uncommitted. They're preoccupied with the world's pleasures, with money, career, fame, fortune. And I think a lot of times that... That happens to women a lot of times. Um, for some reason, uh, women feel that they have to accomplish all of those things to be worthy. That is a misconception for sure. Women are worthy right where God has planted you. Now, the seed that fell on the good ground, those are a people who have a good heart. They're people that have heard the word, and they keep it, and they bear fruit. And the ultimate goal of planting a seed in the first place is for it to produce fruit. That's the reason that we do all of these things, is so that we can glean the fruit from the seed. Of course, we know that seeds are grounded in soil, and the root system constitutes a major part of the plant. If you pull up a plant, you'll see that oftentimes there is more underneath the ground than there was on top of the ground. And I thought that this was interesting. We, um, living in the Midwest, we grow so much corn. A corn root develops at a very slow rate, about a quarter of an inch a day. And I think that's quite a bit, but it's not very much compared to some others. It does that up until the fifth leaf develops. And when the fifth leaf comes on, it grows an inch and a quarter a day until the silking stage. And the roots actually can reach up to 60 inches. That's five feet. But if you've ever pulled a stalk of corn up, man, it's hard to do. Those roots are deep and they're strong. So how can a Christian be rooted? Well, Ephesians 3.17 tells us that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. And God summarizes again in Matthew 27, 37 through 39, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So in reality, there's only one time-tested way to grow healthy spiritual roots. We have to exercise the Holy Spirit, and that's the watering. The Holy Spirit is referred to in Scripture oftentimes as water. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, John 7, 38. And elsewhere, it tells us that the Spirit gives life. 2 Corinthians 3, 5, and 6 says, 
Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being of ourselves, but our suffering is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And if Paul thinks that he wasn't sufficient, what does that make you and I? We aren't sufficient either. We're poor leaking vessels, and the only way that we can keep full is to put our pitcher under the perpetual flow of boundless love. Then, in spite of our leaking, we can be filled to overflowing with the Spirit. How do we do that? Well, daily Bible study, praying, overcoming weaknesses, weathering trials, Obeying all of God's commands as much as we are able. Fellowshipping with true Christians. We need to plant the seed, develop deep roots, water it, and then reap the fruit. In Galatians 5, through 23, we see the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such there is no law. It says the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits. It's not plural. So the fruit of the Spirit is love, and all of those other words are adjectives to describe love in a different way, but love being the basis for all of them. Um, Attributes of joy might be gladness. This comes from serving others and not from personal gratification. And that's what the world tells us to do, to be satisfied personally. But God's word tells us that we can have joy if we serve others. Peace is a state of calmness and just a tranquility of mind. Psalms 119.165 says, Great peace have those who love your law and nothing causes them to stumble. Long-suffering is another attribute of love. Long-suffering, oh man, this one is hard because we live in a world that is instant everything. You know, we have instant mashed potatoes and instant rice, and we've got drive-throughs where, you know, you don't wait. Everything is instant. So long-suffering is, that's a rare thing. But it's really the ability to endure adversity for extended periods of time and to take those periods of time patiently knowing that it is building character. And one of my mantras lately has been, um, you may not get the answer you want, but you're going to get the lesson that you need. Oh, How hard is that? But how true is it? And that is a good example of long-suffering. Gentleness. This could be described maybe as graciousness, taking extra measures to assist those who are in need. Goodness. We know that only God is good. But Matthew 19, 17 says the fruit may be better described as generosity. True Christians should strive to become like him in all ways, giving. And giving is something that we we don't understand that either, really. Um, When we talk about giving, the first thing that comes to our mind is money. But there are so many other things that you can give. You can give of your time and of your talents. Um, You can give money, but money sometimes doesn't take away from us personally as much as giving of ourselves. It's much more difficult to give of yourself than it is to open your wallet and give of money. Faith. Faith is one of the most widely used words in the Christian Christianese, and um, sometimes it's one that is least understood. Genuine faith is believing all that God says in his word. Genesis 15, 6 says that Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him as righteousness. It says Abraham believed God. 
it doesn't say Abraham believed in God. Two little letters, one little word. But how many people can I think of who believe in God, but they don't believe God? There's a huge difference, huge difference. So faith is believing all that God says in his word and applying it to our own lives and acting upon it. Meekness, meekness certainly is not weakness, but it's having a realistic view of ourselves. So good fruit produces a good heart, and a good heart produces fruit that bears. A good heart never thirsts. A good heart never stays trampled. A good heart is implanted. A good heart has roots that go down deep. A good heart bears real fruit. A good heart accepts God's word. A good heart trusts. A good heart obeys. A good heart endures. A good heart has a faith that lasts. So, in the beginning, I was telling you a lot of things about a seed. So now we're going to think about a seed in comparison to God's word. A seed is alive. God's word is alive. Our physical senses aren't able to tell whether a seed is alive or not unless we dig it up and destroy it. God's word is alive. We can't see, we can't feel, we can't smell, we can't taste, but we can hear God's word. And there's only one way to hear his word, and that is allowing him to speak to us through his word or through someone else telling about his word. So also a seed we know that we have to plant or it does nothing until it's planted. And God's word's the very same way. We have to plant God's word. Now, in a garden, there are many, many seeds, and there are all different varieties of plants that grow from these seeds, but they all have to work together to establish a garden. So likewise, those of us who are planted in God's garden, we have to work together. It takes all of us together to make a fellowship. It takes all of us working together and being called by God to do whatever we're called to do. That is our responsibility. That's our contribution to the garden. A garden is, or a seed is much smaller than the plant that it produces. And I talked earlier about the broccoli seed, you know, but other seeds, I mean, when you think about a kernel of corn, that's not very big. And look at the huge corn stalk that develops from that. In the same ways, some little scripture that we hide in our heart may seem small and it may seem insignificant, but it's going to produce great results. There are going to be times that you're going to need that little scripture to help you um, through some situation that is paramount. And a seed always produces after its own kind. So, Anymore, farmers plant a lot of seeds that, are, that have pre-emergence on them. And so when the seed comes up, there aren't any weeds. But in the old days, when I was young, you would see lots of um, soybean fields that would have volunteer corn in it. And that was a great summer job for teenagers, was to walk the beans and cut all of those volunteer and and seeds too, but volunteer corn. Well, that corn, it was doing exactly what it was meant to do. Exactly. It was producing after its own kind. So likewise, when we see a garden and we have, let's say that there are radishes and onions and cucumbers and melons and the radish seed, it could team up with the onions because radishes and onions kind of go together. But that onion could also team up with cucumbers because cucumbers and onions go together. And so even though we are to produce, reproduce what we are, that doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be exactly what we are or that we have to constantly stay with our own kind. It, we need to be used where we're planted. 
So if you're in a group of people and everyone's doing something, if God's not called you to do that specific thing, then you should stay in your own lane. That's another one of my things is that I, I just need to stay in my own lane. Because sometimes I frustrate myself by I see something going on. And um, we have a grandson who has a girlfriend. And the girlfriend is, mm, she's nice, but she's rough around the edges. And she puts things on Facebook that are like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe she put that on Facebook. And I don't know what to do about it. Well, I finally decided I need to pray about it. That's the only thing I can do about it. But it's times like that that I say to myself, stay in your own lane. You know, it's not my business. I can, I can be like the seed underground. I can pray, and nobody really needs to know that I'm concerned about her bad language or her, you know, whatever. I just need to stay in my own lane. We know that a seed will stop growing without nourishment. Same way with us. Um, if we don't surround ourselves with God's word and take it in, we will lack nourishment and will fail to grow. So the more seeds that are planted in your garden, the larger the harvest. God's word is to the kingdom of God what the natural seed is to a harvest. It's essential. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 says, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Psalms 119, 105 is a familiar scripture. It says that your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11 says, For the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and it does not return there, but it waters the earth and makes it bring forth and bud so that it may be a seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So my word be that go forth from your mouth. It shall not return void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the things for which I sent it. And all of a sudden, I'm thinking, okay, we've got this garden and I'm wrapping all this up, and my garden is going to produce because it's got good soil, and I've got a good heart, but wait. All the work that I've put into my garden is going to be destroyed if I don't put a fence around it. We have dogs, big dogs. So they walk through the garden, and they break stuff off. We have deer. They love that tender stuff. We have rabbits. And last year, the rabbits, before we got the fence up, chewed my peppers off. I don't know why a rabbit would like pepper, but they did. And we have coon. And coon loves sweet corn. And they will devour a sweet corn patch overnight. And what they don't eat, they'll knock down so that it's not, it won't produce anymore and you don't get any sweet corn. So we need to put a fence around our garden. Ephesians 6, 10 through 17 says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done so, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with you, which will be able to quench all of the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So we need to put a fence around our mind, around our heart. Um, without doing that, we are subject to danger. 
And if you look at all of these things that God just told us about in Ephesians 6, there is nothing to protect your back. So if you turn your back on God, you're not safe any longer. The enemy is going to get you. You need to stay focused on God and put on his armor. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. This verse, these verses, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, that is your spiritual bouncer. You, you know, a bouncer you've got at a bar, you know, they have a bouncer that throws people out that aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing or causing trouble. The, those two verses are our spiritual bouncer. Anything that tries to come into our mind or our heart that is not of God, we need to have a checkpoint, and we need to throw that out immediately. It's not always easy to identify those things, but if we stay in God's Word, that will be a big help. So, Amos, I want to talk a little bit about Amos because this, this is just far out. This is kind of a rabbit trail, but God led me to the book of Amos, and Amos was called the prophet of doom. He lived in Israel, and they, Israel was, they were really deep in sin and deep in idolatry. And God spoke to Amos through visions, and then Amos used those visions to try to get their, the people to turn their hearts. Um, Amos was a man who was just an ordinary man. He was a herdsman. He was a keeper of cattle. And he also was called a gatherer of sycamore fruit. Now, sycamore trees, we know, were great big tall trees. And that's what um, Zacchaeus climbed. He climbed a sycamore tree. The fruit that they're speaking about here is figs. And I'm not really sure. I, I tried to kind of research this, but I couldn't really get a good answer. Um, figs maybe vined up a sycamore tree. I don't really know. But anyway, they believed, these people believed in the East that the fruit, the um, figs, that they wouldn't ripen unless they were a little bit bruised. So they actually employed someone to scratch and to wound the skin on the fig. And unwounded fruit, even when it was ripe, it was too bitter to be eaten. But after it was scratched or after it was wounded, it would ripen rapidly and it was sweet and it was very edible. So God spoke to Amos in a vision and he said, Amos, what do you see? And Amos said, a basket of summer fruit. The fruit was so ripe that it had been gathered at the end of the season, and it was so ripe, it was summer fruit. It wasn't even good enough to be preserved. It had to be eaten immediately. And the purpose of that was to make Amos aware of what God was going to do. He was going to destroy uh, the Israelites because they were, they were too ripe. They were ripe in sin, and they weren't going to be preserved any longer. But I thought that that was really interesting since we were talking about summer fruit. Um, we, we want to be preserved. We don't want to let ourselves get to the place that we're past preservation. So as women in God's kingdom, we're kind of like a bud on a tree, and there's need for us to grow so that we can produce ripe fruit. And we're ripened by time, by experiences, by studying, by fellowshipping, 
By being bruised, we don't like that one, but it does help us to grow by diligence, by perseverance, by mentoring, by discipling. All of those things will help us to grow and to produce good fruit. Reflecting on all that we've talked about regarding the seed and the soil of our hearts, I'd like to read Romans 12 to you. And as I'm reading Romans 12, think about your heart and think about how we can apply what God is telling us in Romans, how we can apply that to our own situations, to our own hearts, to our corporate body, to situations and circumstances that God has given us to navigate. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is a reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, look around you, many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches, in teaching. He who exhorts, in exhortation. He who gives, with liberality. He who leads, with diligence. He who shows mercy, with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. Continuing steadfastly in prayer. Distributing to the needs of the saints given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends upon you, live peacefully with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not overcome evil. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. A good heart produces good fruit. We plant a garden with one purpose, and that's to reap the fruit. God has planted us in this fellowship to reap a harvest to produce fruit. And I think that we don't really understand sometimes how fortunate we are to be in a fellowship that actually teaches God's Word. Because Mick and I have been in fellowships where God word, God's Word has not been taught. And you're stagnant. You don't grow, and you don't produce good fruit. And when I was talking about Amos, there was one thing there was one scripture in Amos that um, God really spoke to me about. And also, I thought that it was interesting that um, Amos was a keeper of 
cattle. Hmm, I, that's what JD's doing now. He's keeping cows. So, you know, I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, what did I? Well, I'm just going to look in my Bible because I know where it is in my Bible. Okay, this is what stood out to me in Amos, the whole story about Amos. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And that's kind of where our society is today. Hearing God's word is not prevalent and it's not on a lot of people's mind, and even a lot of people who are attending a fellowship and who are an active part of a Christian group, they don't hear God's Word because God's Word might offend somebody. And besides that, God's Word's old-fashioned. You know, we know bigger and better things now, and so God's Word is not relevant any longer, and that's not true. We have to cling to God's Word. Carolyn, so much. That was so beautiful. Um, I just want to share with you some things that um, I put down in my notes. And, um, you know, I was just thinking, I don't know what you guys have, you know, I don't know how you think about this day, but for me, um, I mean, this is a school day. Um, I've been a school teacher for over 20 years, and that's what this day is. This is a school day. And I, I personally have come here to learn. I've been learning as I've been preparing my own teaching, but that was such a blessing. And um, I just wanted to share with you some of the things that quickly that I put down in my notes, um, that just a few of the things, I won't share everything. But anyway, um, I really appreciated what Carolyn said, that we um, as women have been called for a very special purpose. And I hope that comes out today in my teaching. And, um, you know, Carolyn and I, we kind of... Um, through the past couple months, we've been kind of going back and forth and um, just kind of hinting on maybe what we were going to teach on today. But we didn't, like, get together and really go over it together or anything like that. So any of the things that she hit on today that are very similar to what I'm going to be speaking on, I just know that that's the Holy Spirit. So that really blesses me. Um, I wrote down, we cannot proclaim our own message. Um, we are here to speak God's word. God's word is the standard. Um, I'm going to be speaking on sanctification, and when she was speaking about the crowded heart, um, I just really was thinking about how the act of sanctification helps alleviate that crowded heart, and we all need that. We all need that. We all probably don't realize it, but our hearts are very crowded. It's hard to be in this world and not be of the world, and the world crowds our hearts. And so it's important for us to take time away from the world and really look at our hearts and ask God to show us those things that don't need to be there and that are crowding him out. And then I loved what she said about the fence. Um, and this is kind of what I put down. Putting up that fence is a choice. Um, it's a choice that you have to make. Um, it's not there naturally. We have to choose to put that fence up. Putting that fence up says yes to showing that you care about what's in that garden, what's in your heart. And you know how fragile the things in your heart are. They're special. They've been put there by God, and they need to be protected, okay? They are tender seed and tender plants that can easily be destroyed by the evil in the world. And so that fence is a choice that we make, okay? It takes work on our part to do that. And it's a very important work in preserving all that God wants to do within you. So 
Thank you so much, Carolyn. That was beautiful. Um, we are going to get ready for lunch now, okay? So I'd like to pray for the food and then also just offer any guidance. Um, I put out some service for all the salads that are coming in. I've got spoons. I've got some salad tongs there and stuff like that out. But if you don't find something that you need, please feel free to make your way to the kitchen. There's several drawers back there that have that. Um, just go ahead and get your salads. Bring them all out ready for everybody to go through the line. And... Um, if you brought something gluten-free that you specifically want to make sure somebody knows about, I have little note cards in the back kitchen. You can write that on there and put that in front of your dish, whatever it might be. And um, I think that's all. So let's pray for the food. Lord, we just thank you so much um, for what you've already shown us this morning. Father, your word is so precious. And Lord, um, we tremble at your word. It's just so holy. It's living it's active, it changes us, Lord, and I pray that we would be changed today, that as all this beautiful seed is being planted in our hearts, Lord, that you would cause it to grow, and that um, we would be careful to fence it in and protect it, and nourish it, and water it, Lord, and tend it um, as we should. I pray, Father God, that you would bless this food um, that you have so lovingly prepared for us through the many hands that are here today, Father. I pray that you would bless our fellowship and that um, you would just be with us. We praise you, we love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.